Hi everyone, Grant here. The following episode with author David Wright originally aired on November 19th, 2019. We discuss a novel in progress that has since been accepted for publication by Grove Atlantic. An excerpt of Professor Wright's Black Cloud Rising appeared in the August 31st issue of The New Yorker, and the entire book will hit shelves in February 2022. Enjoy the show! Hello again, everybody, and welcome back to Writers in the World. I'm your host, Grant Deem, and with me today is award-winning author David Wright. He has published works of fiction, nonfiction, journalism, and even co-wrote a documentary screenplay. Professor Wright teaches at the University of Illinois at Urbana-Champaign. Professor, thank you so much for joining me today. Yeah, it's good to be here. Thanks for having me. So, uh, so uh, Professor Wright gave a reading yesterday, and I think that might be a good place to start our conversation. Um, here in the MFA, we think about audience a lot, and we attend these readings, and a lot of our questions have to deal with um, what went into selecting what was read and sort of maybe the questions you asked yourself or did you think about audience or just anything you want to say to that? Um, yeah, I mean, on the one hand, uh, you know, I've, you do this for long enough, you do any number of, of readings uh, and there are moments when it's, you know, just completely appropriate to read from the current work that's out, you know, recently published or whatever. Um, but given that I'm between books, and uh, the new book that I'm working on, I, I feel is is pretty close to done, and so it just seemed to it just seemed to make sense to me to speak or to read from there, especially given the audience that I knew I was going to have, you know, fellow writers, uh, people who would be receptive to um, new work, but with a, a sort of critical ear. And part of that also is I read a little bit longer than I than I typically do, but. I tend to try to read for shorter periods of time because what's most interesting to me is the Q&A afterwards, the sort of questions you get and the response and that conversation that happens there. And so in this particular context, with new work, um, uh, for which feedback is really welcome to a, a perfect audience for receiving it, it just seemed obvious that I should read from the, from the new novel. Great, yeah. Um, yeah, so in that Q&A session last night, you showed... Uh, there were quite a few questions related to genre, and so mm -hmm. as I mentioned in the bio, um, you write across genres, yeah. um, from young adult fiction to works of literary journalism, the screenplays, um, so sort of switching gears a little bit, but what is it like working with different forms? Um, did you always want to write in multiple genres? No, not necessarily, but it was interesting. I, I was thinking about this question um, uh, after the conversation we had at dinner where folks were talking a little bit about what they're writing and, and the impetus for writing about it. And it made me think about my own um, process, you know, for coming at subject matter. And it made me realize I, I didn't grow up a, a particularly good reader. I grew up around books and also with readers. My mom and my big sister in particular um, were just you know, voracious readers, constantly reading. I was not that interested. So I came to it a little bit late and it occurred to me in thinking about it again last night, subject matter is what comes to me. So I'm not really a writer. I think some writers um, have always been readers and come to writing because they love a particular genre or they're drawn by a particular genre or a particular use of language, a particular... Um, um, 
way of thinking about it and approaching language. Whereas for me, it's always been subject matter. You know, I, from college, I went to this, this small liberal arts college that got me thinking about things in ways that were good for me, that also began to give me language, frankly, very specifically, like just actually being able to express myself moderately intelligibly. Um, and the questions that I learned to pose for myself and that I was seeking answers for, writing seemed to be the way to get at it. Other, other people might approach it in any number of ways. Friends of mine who work in you know, um, development or different sorts of fields are asking themselves similar or, or, or difficult questions that are important to them. And that's how they get at answers. For me, it was writing. And so I, I mentioned that I, I was a journalist briefly and, and never particularly well. I was never a good journalist in part because I'm interested in the questions, but I, but I, that sort of notion of, of trying to create some sort of sense of objectivity, I'm really interested in my own responses to those questions. I want them to be informed. I don't want to just sort of be in a corner and, you know, you know, sort of making stuff up as I go. I want it to be informed, but it's really the subject matter. And so it's a long winded way of sort of going, the questions are there. And when a story or something strikes me, the form that it best fits in is how I get to it. And there's a certain measure of malleability. You know, the, the young adult novel began as memoir, you know, um, Fire on the Beach began sort of really, which is a narrative history, social history, began really nebulously um, as what I thought was going to be an MFA project, maybe like a short story. Uh, and with time, it just needed to be nonfiction, I, just for any number of reasons. Likewise, the, the, like I say, the YA novel felt like nonfiction. I wanted to explore these things that had to do with some of my experience living abroad. And it just didn't bear out that that was the best way to approach it. So it's, it's, let, it's a super long-winded answer. I tend to be long-winded. I apologize. <laughs> I love it. But I, I tend to come at the subject matter I want to get at and then think that I know how it needs to be written and try to be open to that not necessarily being the appropriate genre and then hopefully have you know, the ability to sort of write it well in the genre in which it needs to be written. Right. Yeah, no, and that makes me think of some of the some of your words yesterday about, you know, asking what does the story need and how that can be sort of yeah. part of the reveal in the container or the form that it maybe even comes yeah. in. And, Absolutely. Yeah. And uh it also made me think of um something else that you said yesterday about sort of what you're interested in writing well. Yeah. And these places where um cultures are, are coming together in conflict. Yeah. And I know yeah. that wasn't made part of the original yeah. question, no, but, but um, yeah. I'm really interested in that. And, yeah. Um, I'm not even sure exactly the question I want to articulate with that, but uh, why, what attracts you to, the, to that phenomenon or those moments in history, and why do you think that's, those, those contain those, those moments sort of contain these stories that are rich and, and worth telling? I think that, so part of it is personal. Um, part of it is personal, just I have a sort of complicated background um, and, you know, this impulse in me to sort of figure things out comes from a personal place on some level. But the personal place from which it comes also, with time I've sort of learned to understand, parallels, I think, our American identity. I mean, I think that at heart, in fact, I know that at heart, America is about mixedness and this impulse and desire to resist it, to limit it, to 
not recognize it or not call it by its name when in fact this is what has been going on since since the beginning um and so that has interested me as a reader ultimately as somebody who is trying to write but as a teacher you know i teach creative writing but i also teach some literature courses and i approach them in this cultural study sort of way uh, for instance i'm teaching a class uh that, that's called uh, slavery and identity right now um and ultimately that's what we're talking about is slavery but looking at american identity through that lens um my students tend to want to and i think people in general it's such a fraught subject matter it's so central to who we are as a country but so difficult still 200 and however many years later my students tend to want to approach it like they they self-select on some level taking the class but they tend to uniformly come in with this view you know white people bad black people victims and that story is much more complicated than that um and so we that, that the mixing that went on and this impulse to create something new but still stuck in older notions that's who we are as a country and who i am as as an individual again from a personal place my mom uh, she's passed she was a french jew uh, i was raised by a black american who i thought was my father but then with time i learned that my biological father was this man from west africa so there's this this meeting of cultures, and most of that happened in France before I was born. I was raised here as an American, that mixing the, of cultures, in my case, it might be maybe a little bit more um, um, exaggerated, for lack of a better word, but that's true of all of us. I, I look around and I go, you know, we're defining ourselves in such rigid ways, yet, you know, you look at folks and they, when they talk just a little bit more, or you look at, at, you know how they appear and you're like well it's probably not that reductive it's probably mm -hmm. not that simple there's more going on there yeah. racially class-wise all this stuff that was a long-winded winded answer that was circuitous but ultimately that that notion of mixedness and the ways it's complex and interesting that's what interests me right and I mean that makes me think of the essay I read um, published on your friend's website yeah. that sort of speaks to uh, you know, you mentioned Twain and, and some of his work and how um, you sort of look at that through a, a historical lens. And even while that is complicated and there is a conversation to be had around, um, you know, some of the language and his works, how that, how it, because it exists, a conversation can be had, yes. you know, and, and that must sort of, be had almost. Right, exactly. You know? And and you you mentioned, too, uh, sort of a goal for you is is broadening the the audience in a way to engage uh, yes. in this subject matter and not to necessarily solve solve it or come to a conclusion but yeah. but complicate exactly. in, in a way exactly I think the impulse is always to um, um, if we're posing question there questions there must be answers and hopefully there will be answers but I think mostly we have to keep posing the question and including people in the conversation and complicating our responses and ultimately we'll get to something approximating an answer but but that's specifically it that essay you're, you're mentioning two things that to me were interesting um originally it was uh it it, it came out in the chronicle of higher education in part because i thought that that audience would be more engaged in exactly doing that, complicating it. And there was some of that, don't get me wrong, there was some of that, but it was interesting to me how in the academy sometimes 
there can be a certain rigidity. You know, we, we end up wed to, I mean, I'm a professor, so I'm self-criticizing, but we end up wed to sort of rigid notions. And it's not the fact of pushback that, I, that, is, that is problematical, quite the opposite. But it's, I remember a few responses that wanted to attack the way that I had characterized Twain or characterized the way that Twain used, Twain used Jim, which seemed to me a way to avoid engaging the larger question. And this is the second point I wanted to get to. The larger question wasn't so much around Twain, as you, as you were saying, Grant. It was a way to look at Twain as this example of broadening the conversation. Fundamentally, one of the things that I've noticed as a teacher of creative writing is, and this is a fraught question, but the, the question of cultural appropriation, which is a hugely important issue, and one which, which we should be having active conversations about, part of the conversation we should be having about it is how to also allow, I'm, I'm not sure that's the best word, but, but allow, maybe welcome people from other group identities to write about other group identities. And specifically, when it comes to racial issues, and in this case, I was talking about racial issues, like my black students will, without thinking about it, write white characters. My white students won't write black characters, partly because they think they don't have permission, partly because they fear they can't do it or won't know how to do it well. And the corollary to that is in not doing it well, they will receive a certain sort of criticism um, I'll try to pick up my train of thought there. Yeah. So yeah, you so, had your workshop. You had, yeah, yeah. So partly that they will be criticized for it, but that that criticism will also be. I mean, it, when you talk about race, it's it's just particularly difficult. Um, and I think as a, as a, as a white student, um, particularly white students who are, you know, open to talking about it, maybe feel may may feel particularly sensitive to the sort of criticism criticism they might receive. Criticism in and of itself isn't bad. I think it's about how one criticizes. So I, I, I know that, I know, I teach in literature classes sort of histories of cultural appropriation. But I feel like we also have to, on the one hand, we've arrived at a place in, 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 in our history where these conversations can be more inclusive. And I also feel like in order for that to happen, as a teacher, say, or as a black writer, I have to open up the space um, for that to be able to happen. And it's really important because otherwise we tend to be having one-sided conversations. You know, white folks talking to white folks or liberal white folks talking to liberal white folks about black folks and black folks talking to black folks or Asian folks talking to Asian folks and wondering, wondering how we enter this conversation where at some point we have to all be talking to one another. Right, yeah, I mean, it seems to almost go against then it seems to then be creating these other echo chambers. Yes. And if the goal is, you know, to reach some sort of deeper understanding or to open up these uh, avenues to understand or have a creative dialogue, it seems to, um, you know, limit that chance of that ever happening. Exactly. So, uh, yeah, and I see it now. Um, and I, I would love to even talk more about just your teaching experience and how this plays out more in your workshops. Um, but I do want to get around to some yeah. other questions dealing with craft. But I do, as a teacher myself, uh, uh, now teaching freshmen in college or sophomores, and 
I see a resistance to just participate. Yeah. You know, I feel like, um, and I can't speak exactly for them, obviously, but I feel like there's a fear maybe uh, to of, of saying the wrong thing or of being um, labeled or, yeah. you know, f- being funneled into one camp or the other. Yeah. And, uh, yeah, it's too bad that that's that's almost you know that's that's a that's a vibe in a lot of uh, campuses. Yeah, it's, it's one example. I know we're going to go in, in back to crap, but it's one brief example. Um, so I, I take this approach, and I was teaching creative writing for the first time in several years, and it was the one hundred level, and we were having a conversation about pronouns and things like that. And and again, to me, I had some awareness of this, but it, but not as much as I probably should have. And at one point, I um, so we've been having this conversation over the course of the, the, the semester, and I had a couple of students who um, were open to the conversation in the way that I articulated it, but you could tell they were also really um, um, leery, let's say, of other students in the classroom, maybe other people writing, uh, transgender people, what have you. And at one point, I, I, I misspoken in, in use of, of the word transgender, and I you know, added ED in speaking too fast and maybe too spontaneously. And it was super awesome, because in that moment, it's just towards the end of the semester, both students like rose up to correct me, and there was anger. But because of that, in my classroom, I try to you know, shift the power so that I'm not the central source of power. Mm-hmm. They, felt, you know, they felt comfortable enough to sort of call me out, call me out aggressively, and also correct me in a way that because ultimately whether I shift the center of power, I still am the source of power, mm-hmm. they could express their anger, be critical, correct me, and the whole class could sort of go, oh, this is what's going on. I still remember that event. I don't misuse the word. But it allowed us to sort of go, one can criticize and one can take criticism and one can continue. The conversation can yeah. grow, you know. So it's important. It's important. Right, yeah. I mean, yeah. that's that's how learning is done, exactly. right? Yeah. So. Uh, learning starts from, the, starts from error. You make a mistake exactly. yeah. and you grow from there. Right. And college, in my mind, should be the place, the safe place to make the mistakes. Exactly. To, to speak your mind, but then also to be open to criticism maybe exactly. of that point of view. So. Yeah. Great. Hello everybody again. Welcome to Writers in the World. I'm Grant Deem with author David Wright and we are going to shift the focus right now of our conversation to, to writing a little bit more craft and uh, David has actually co-authored multiple works yeah. with, with other writers. Um, again, in multiple forms, multiple mm-hmm. genres, and that is something that's super interesting to me um, on a lot of levels. I mean, even from like from the invention, you know, point all the way till revising and drafting and the the hard work that goes with with writing. So, what um, I guess what is co-authoring that process? Does what does that like open up for you as a writer? Does it um, allow for a different type of story to be told or can you just speak a little bit to, to why? why why choose to to write with somebody else yeah both my first two books were, were uh, collaborative works and for two different reasons the first book was just happenstance um, I mentioned last night um, it was my co-author's original idea he'd been in the Outer Banks and he knew the Outer Banks and he came to me at a, at a party in grad school with this story did I know anything about it 
Um, and so we were both interested in the subject matter. And as we just began doing some work, it just became a collaborative project. And we had no idea it was going to be a book. When we first started getting a little bit ambitious about it, we thought it might be an article. Um, and so collaboration was just a function of what we were doing because that's how the project grew. But by the same token, you know, we were in grad school and as we were learning to be, you know, to, to teach composition rhetoric, to teach writing, there was a lot of emphasis on collaboration. So in the abstract, it also appealed to me because they were, my co-authors, David Zobie, there were things that I just knew he did well. Um, there were other things I knew I did well. And I thought that the conversations that we would be having sort of actively person to person, but also our writing coming together would be instructive for me. And I thought that, and I think this is true, it would make the book better. Um, with that book, we tried to go for one unified voice. And so that made the conversation slightly different. The second book was a deliberate choice. Um, I mentioned earlier that I come to sub subject, subject matter brings me to, to the, the, the form in a way. And I wanted to write about, um, again, cultural mixing, the way that cultures come together, but in a different context, in the context of, of France. And, and I thought that would be a reflection of the United States, and I think it's true, but also in the specific context of the poor uh, Parisian suburbs and, and the way that sort of culture and, and race mix there. Um, and I had lived abroad and, and um, worked. I, I, was, I played summer pro football there, and, and one of my teammates, who was also a dear, dear friend, and still is a dear friend, um, was French-Canadian. And I'm this black kid from Texas. And we would just have these, we got to be close because, you know, after practice, we'd end up in a cafe having a beer and talking about race or talking about these things. He's a journalist now, he's a writer. Uh, but at that time, we're just sort of 20-year-old dunderheads with a little bit too much time on our hands. And when I decided that I wanted to write about that, I thought it interesting to have two voices speaking to the same subject. And so that was much more deliberate, like collaborate, two different voices, two different um, approaches to the subject matter with one narrative uh, through line. Um, the act of collaboration in both cases is hard. You know, I think we tend to think collaboration, so it's one book and there are two people, so therefore that's half the work each. But I would say it's one book, two people, so you have one and a half amount of work. Everybody's doing a lot more, maybe two times the work. It's just, a, you know, you're doing all the hard work you're doing as a single author and then having these conversations that complicate it and then also, you know, the power dynamics that play themselves out. In this case, we had two different voices as opposed to the first book where we were sort of creating one voice. We had two different voices, but those have to speak to each other, but also mesh and create one through line. The degree to which we did it successfully or not, the jury's out. But that was the aim from the beginning. Um, and it was rich for me to have done it. And I think my co-author would say the same. And it was a bear, you know, so. Yeah, I mean, that makes me, uh, the second part of this question was going to be um, sort of the obstacles maybe than that. That, yeah. that setup presents and you sort of it sounded like you were yeah you already sort of got to that a, a bit it, it's almost I don't want to say it's a balancing act per se in terms of um, you know like with the with the second book where you were going for two different voices distinctly different um, so I don't know if maybe that presents part of the challenge just allowing for both writers to feel as if they've um, 
contributed in the same way to the to the book and, I, and maybe that's not even no that's that it is important because there has to be balance otherwise otherwise I, I don't think that the through narrative would have worked if one voice predominates and so you know like in any sort of conversation or relationship at a certain point maybe one's taking the four and one's retreating we came to understand that that had to happen so we start early with the Quebec Quebecer's voice, the white kid's voice, and his sort of viewpoint sort of launches the narrative. And the the black kid from Texas, you know, he's a little bit more in retreat and he's a little bit more, I'm not sure mysterious, but maybe a little bit more mysterious, but but probably a little bit more unsympathetic. It's something that we came to be aware of. I wasn't sure that was happening, what was happening when I was creating the character. But that turned out to be a boon, so we can have this sort of shift that happens naturally and sort of one voice giving way naturally to the other and, and having more import without the other voice completely disappearing and then resurging in this shift that happens towards the end, whereas we come to understand um, the black character's, uh, his complexity sort of shifts how we see him, you know, particularly as in that context of the Parisian suburbs and the riots happened, this was about the 2005 Paris riots, there's just a different relationship between the characters and and the people who are at the center of, of that. Um, so yeah, I mean, that's a long-winded, maybe a little bit vague way of talking about how, just as in any relationship or any conversation, one takes the four, another takes the four, but you have to make that organically work craft-wise. Right. And so we didn't understand that before we started doing it, but you put that thing together and you get a sense of the imbalances and you start getting feedback and you're like, oh, we had to shift some things. We had to, some chapters that had been, for instance, some chapters that had been told from the white kid's point of view at a certain point, we shifted it. We're like, the imbalance is here. Let's let the black kid have this experience. And you shift the voice and the experience shifts, but it also balances out the narrative again, you know, all the while trying to drive the story forward, you know? So before uh, Professor Wright heads back uh, up to Champagne, he has to teach today, yeah. right? Um, I I just wanted to ask him if there was anything that he wanted to highlight before he left. Uh, any any good news he wanted to share about either products going on, something that has inspired him recently, either uh, uh, in his reading or just in the in the world out there. So um, yeah, before you go, is there is there anything you'd like to share with the audience? Um. Maybe just a little plug about the, the novel that I'm finishing, you know, um, I read from last night. Uh, it's been important to me and, and uh, I think an interesting story, getting at some of the things we were talking about. Um, I'm currently now, you know, looking for an agent. So if there are any agents listening, it's a, a civil war story. Um, but I, people want to call it historical fiction and on some level it certainly is that. But I hope it's historical fiction in the way that, you know... Um, Toni Morrison writes historical fiction, you know, or, or whomever. It's, it, it's less trying to be historical fiction than it's trying to get at important issues and tell a good story through this, this lens that is the Civil War. The, the basic outline is um, these runaway slaves who flee into uh, Union hell lines in Virginia. Um, uh, Ambitious General, who was a bit of a character named Edward Wilde, forms this troop, a little bit like in Glory, but these are runaway slaves literally from the plantation. And while there's this debate about 
um, whether or not to arm these black slaves, particularly in the slap, these former slaves, particularly in the South, Wilde does and leads them on an expedition to the country where they had recently fled from. And their aim is to free, you know, all the slaves in that region of North Carolina. So, you know, their friends, their relatives and whatnot. And I use that story. It's, it, it's historical. It grew out of my first book, Fire on the Beach, because I stumbled upon it. Um, it's also then talking about the story of mixedness. The central character who was an actual figure um, was central to Fire on the Beach, my first book, is a former slave whose father was his master. So as he's returning home, there's this, on the one hand, this sort of classic Civil War story, brother against brother, but one brother's white, the other brother's black. But there's also then this confrontation with your father who owned you. So I want the story to be a, a sort of interesting, exciting adventure story about this, you know, Civil War raid into North Carolina, but that's layered then with this story of mixedness and, and our, our racial origins. So that's my plug. Yeah, no, um, that sounds like a rich story to, to use uh, that word again. Um, knock on wood. Do you have a title yet for the book? I do, book? and it's deliberately provocative, and I fully recognize that it may not be the title that an, a publisher is comfortable to go with, but it's called That Nigga Wild. And again, the, the Civil War general's name was Wild, so it's a play on that. The black troopers, as, as they come to trust, and then trust, on the one hand, this person as their leader, but then trust their lives with him, trust his ambitions for them, um, they sort of take him in as, as one of their own and in the same sort of playful, playful way that they might call themselves by that word. By calling him that, they're saying that. You know, they're saying he's one of us. At the same time, it's also meant to sort of reflect how they themselves are viewed. Um, so they are viewed by that word and they are also viewed as inherently savage, as inherently wild. So, so it's a play. It seems to me perfectly apt to the, to the subject matter. And at the same time, because of the use of the word, my sister, I think, would uh, uh, would berate me to no end if, if, if I had to change the title. I recognize that just giving the, the world of publishing, maybe I will have to. But that's the, the title now. Sure. Well, um, whatever the result may be of that uh, aspect of the book, it's just in hearing the excerpt and reading a, a little bit more about the project and, and sort of the historical elements of it, it sounds like a story that yeah. uh, absolutely needs to be told. and. Um, I'm, I'm excited uh, for you as you sort of continue you. to develop it. I appreciate it. I want to thank you again for coming and, and taking time out of your yeah. busy schedule to, to chat with me. It's great. I really enjoyed it. Thank great. you. Yeah, no, thanks a lot. Right. Safe journeys back. Thank you. And that's our show, folks. Make sure to tune in next time when I sit down with poet, professor, and essayist Dr. Jenny Mueller.